You're listening to the National Trust podcast. I'm James Grasby, a curator in the Midlands. In my last episode, I visited one of our central London properties, and this time I'm smack bang in the middle of Birmingham at another of the Trust's city centre locations. But rather than the splendour of Fenton House, this time I'll be witnessing how the other half lived at the Birmingham Back to Backs. Today I am in central Birmingham on a wonderful sunny morning and behind me is New Street Station. I'm just walking through the edges of Chinatown with its wonderful exotic architecture and Chinese lanterns and I think they're just clearing up after the Chinese New Year. But I'm walking away from what are really quite high tower blocks, casinos, into a more traditional and smaller scale part of Birmingham, just here on the corner of Ing Street and Hurst Street with some interesting Victorian Edwardian shop fronts. Number 57, George Saunders Alterations and Repairs, Eliza Wheeler Gin Dealer, and Candy and Sweet Sellers. The back-to-backs are in disguise, in a sense. It's one of the trust's more unassuming properties, and they blend perfectly into this streetscape. Now, look, there's the front door, and I'm going to see if I can find my friend Hugh. Hello. Come on in, we'll have a cup of tea and a chat. Fabulous. Hugh, thank you very much for opening today. I know it was a closed day. Now, Hugh, help me out. The back-to-backs, what does that mean? They're a collection of Victorian working-class houses. One house, one room deep. That house shares the same back wall as the house in front of it. So some residents would have looked out on the streets and others onto a courtyard. I'm Professor Carl Chin, MBE. I'm a social historian. Back-to-back housing arose to accommodate as many workers as possible. The period about 1760 to about 1830. During the Industrial Revolution, back-to-back housing was common not only in Birmingham, Manchester, Salford, Leeds, Bolton, many places in the Midlands and the North. In Birmingham, by 1900, a population of almost 200,000 lived in them. That was a city the size of Bolton, the city of a thousand trades, a city within a city. Hugh, you've got a plan in front of me as I'm longing to ask you to explain. Hundreds of houses in a very concentrated area. It looks like that old game Tetris. And you've indicated here in this small little postage stamp in the bottom left corner, a red line indicating the boundary of the back-to-backs. Is this the only part that has survived? This is the last remaining court that we have in the UK. They survived over 100 years, a majority of them. And in 1966, the government decided they were no longer fit for living and they were condemned. The only acceptance was that you might be able to work from them. And that is how our court there survived. You, the part of the back-to-backs we're in at the moment is the gift shop and has got a really quite modern, functional appearance. What happens through that door? When we go into Court 15, you will see the past in all its glory and unchanged. How exciting. Lead the way. So we're going back out onto the street. So we're just walking past another door to number 52. Into a little passageway into a courtyard. Look at that. You expect to see a back door. And we've got another complete streetscape here. You've got some very interesting Victorian toys. A go-kart, skittles. This is a playground and communal area. The Back-to-Back Museum is a really important centre for Birmingham. It's the the last of the back-to-backs, but we have to bear in mind they were built early on. They were better built. They were often built with too much dirt. 
instead of sand for the mortar. They're built with horses hair for the plaster. The foundations are very weak. There's the brewers, the wash house, which is shared by the women of the yard to do the washing in. There's what Bromwich called the miskins. There's no individual toilets. There's cesspits, privies they called them, just a hole in the ground. So we have our 11 houses here and to our right, we have two wash houses. This is washing laundry? Laundry, This yes. is laundry. And did these have running water? The well was located about a five minutes from here. So the early inhabitants here had a five minute walk to get a glass of water? For some people it could have been uh, over an hour and these were the young girls who would have to do this. So between How the ages, probably five upwards, they would go on their own to the well. Uh, there was no sewage systems or anything. It was just a bucket in the privies in the corner. Oh. Next to them is a miskin, and this is where all the waste would be emptied into from both the privies and what we call a gazunda, which is the chamber pot that goes under the bed. Now, <laughs> this would be emptied into the miskin and would be collected by a night soil man. They might be known as slums if that night soil man is not hired. That's a pretty dreadful thought, isn't it? Human ordia building up in huge quantities while it, where, where, where your kids are playing. So this is where cholera really hit us hard. TB, bronchitis, some of the um, things that are just common to us now are wiping people out, and especially to the poorer communities. Hugh, you're painting a pretty grim picture. <laughs> Looking at these, at these buildings, I mean, they're, they're very attractive. It's deceptive, isn't it? What do you know of the people who lived here? We do know that there was a family called the Levies who lived here in the 1840s in house number one. We had uh, mum and dad, who are Lawrence and Priscilla, and they lived here with their four children, so a fairly small family. At this time in the 1840s, Lawrence, his job was a clock hand maker. Hugh, I'm longing to go inside. Can we have a look? So you can start at house number one, but mm. I'd advise you go by yourself because we are out of hours, we are closed today. There could be some spooky goings on, noises or spooky sounds. Mm. Some people say that there may be time travel involved. Time travel. If you do go in there and that is the case, pretend to be a customer. Thank you for your good advice. Right, you've left me to, uh, to ghosts from the past. So this is the principal ground floor room of house number one. So terracotta quarry tiled floor on which this very pretty but plain mahogany table sits and it's all laid up. Six place settings and some knives and forks. Everything is slightly rusty. Some very plain, rather austere brass candlesticks. And it's a quite a substantial room with a staircase going up in the corner, winding round over a little cupboard, full of all the best china. Very nice little Chinese scene on it. And a me is that a menorah? A one, two, three, four, eight, nine branched candlestick, I think it is. It's a funny mix of things. Some very utilitarian objects, like the rather blackened kettle hanging over the fire, and other really ornamental and precious things rather high up on the shelf. But remarkable is this uh, stenciled wall covering. Excuse me. Mrs. Levi, I'm sorry to interrupt you when you're putting a meal together. What, what you should be as well. Did you want anything in particular? Did yes, you need to see Lawrence? No, let, let me think. Yes. Hands for a clock. Have you hands for a clock? You are a paying customer. Almost certainly. Well, just wait there for yes, me. Yes, okay. Lawrence! 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 No, he's not listening. Well, dear Hugh, he, sh he did warn me. I wasn't quite expecting that. Welcome. Excuse me, sir. Hello. My husband will see you now. We don't have all day. 
Customer service is everything. Narrow stair, isn't it? Mr. Levy. Yes, sir. Well, I've got a, I've got a clock problem. One of the, the hands has collapsed completely, the other is missing. So I was wondering if there was any chance that you could, you could make me a couple. Any of those good enough for you? They look absolutely beautiful. I mean, look, precision, this is precision work, it isn't is, it? I mean, the, the components really that you're working on are absolutely tiny. Birmingham was different from the other places, though, in that it tended to, towards the end of the Industrial Revolution, still be dominated by small workshops, as opposed to Manchester, Cottonopolis, where you had large mills. In Birmingham, lots of people worked in what was called shopping, the workshops at the back of housing. And Birmingham was also different in that it was the city of a thousand trades, the diversity of its industries. Birmingham was famous for the toy trade, small metal goods. We're not stupid, we're in the middle of England. We need to transport things. So before canals, we made lots of small metal goods, snuff boxes, buttons, buckles. Lawrence, can you um, wrap him up some clock hands and send him on his way, please? I will, if you'd like to go down to my, my wife, Priscilla, yes. I will wrap up some of these hands for yes, you. Yes, yeah, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed. I'm sorry to interrupt you when you're cooking, but it smells delicious. Thank you. Thank you. I admire that roll of wallpaper. Forgive me for... Oh, the wallpaper? Yes, oh, you do. Beautiful? Yeah. Well, since the tax was abolished, we will be the first in the court to have wallpaper, and some of them look at us as if we're a bit uppity, having moved from London. Well, it's very pretty and stylish. Thank you. I wish you well with it. Now, look, I must pay my bill before yep. I leave you to it. How much do I owe you? Sixpence, please. Sixpence? Look, there's there's twenty p. Would that do it? What? What? There's no such That's thing as well, a, look, it's like a funny shaped, I'm funny coloured stuffy bit. This Goodbye. just won't do it. Mrs. Levy, Mr. Oh. Lee. Le Levi, oh, no. you're no. giving away three clock hands now. Hey. Is, go after him. After him, Lawrence. Hugh, I wasn't expecting that. That was extraordinary. How fascinating. And Priscilla's a bit spiky sometimes, isn't she? See you <laughs> Now, Hugh, look, where, where, where are we going to go next? Well, I've got house number two house now, number two. which is the second house. Prepare me for it. So, house number two is set in the 1870s. A gentleman called Herbert Oldfield lived here, and he worked with glass. That was his profession. The Oldfields um, weren't as well off as the Levies. So how many years separate the two families? About 30 years. About 30 years between them. OK, let's go. Show me the way. I'm pleased to be getting out of the rain into house number two. We've reached the sort of middle of the Victorian period. Wallpaper, plush curtains, and slightly more elaborate upholstered furniture, and an enormous wrought iron coal-burning grate with an array of irons and blackened kettles. And the table set out for a meal with spices from around the world. Though I suppose Britain, at the height of empire, had access to all these things. A plate of oysters that would be a million pounds today, but at the time was the food of the, of the poor. And two men who are pondering over a tray of glass eyes by the look of it. Hello, sir. Can I help you? Hello. I'm sorry to walk into your house uninvited. I'm feeling rather disorientated. What year am I in? 1879. Strange thing to ask. So do you make them to commission, or do you have a, a line of eyes that you trade in? It's quite a call for 
dolls, wax dolls and porcelain dolls, brass ink pots with the animal heads. Mr. Stevenson here is fond How of this do latest, do do, do, Mr. latest craze of uh, taxidermy. Mr. Stevenson, forgive me for asking, but how do you afford your hobby? I run a coffin factory. Taxidermy is an expensive hobby, of course, but uh, Birmingham is booming and business is good. It's a wonderful hobby. You should really get into it. Uh, your name, I'm sorry. Uh, it's James. Um, is there anything I could interest you in? I don't know. I mean, if we started something in the sort of hedgehog line, hedgehog. would that be a possibility? It would, but... Um, for something like a hedgehog, I think I've got something more suitable for you upstairs, if you'd like to, uh, I'd to follow love to me. See them. The stairs are rather narrow, I'm afraid. I'll follow you. <laughs> and I'm not as young as I was. <laughs> Hello. Oh, here we go. Oh, I think I've just trodden in the gazunder. I'm terribly sorry, but this is disgusting. I'm lucky I didn't grow up in a back-to-back, -back, but my mum did. My dad was born in a back-to-back. -back. My dad's family all lived in back-to-backs. Our nan was the oldest of 12. They slept top and tail. When a new baby was born, her responsibility was to help her mum. She was a little mother. And nan had to go to the greengrocers and buy um, an orange box. And my great-grandmother would make a crib up from an orange box. Lots of poorer people were doing that. When things got a bit better, great-granny and granddad were able to buy an, a second-hand chest of drawers. So the younger babies had a drawer for the crib instead of an orange box. So it was very tough living. So we've come into a, a bedroom. Yes, indeed. This is my son's bedroom. I had yes. 11 children. 11 children. Um, oh, 10 survived. We were very blessed. And the boys would have slept up here, three to a bed. Um, the girls slept downstairs with us. Baby would be in a drawer, keep them off the floor, away from the vermin. And so why is, why is this sheet, forgive me for asking, hanging between the two beds? Well, uh, I have lodgers. They're factory workers. They're not here at the same time. They really just rent the bed. So one sleeps, one works. One works, one sleeps. We need the money. Mr. Uh, yes, Mr. Stevenson? Absolutely, sir. No problem. Right, so let's see what I can find in the uh, the drawer for your uh, your hedgehog. What do we think? Yes, I would love two of those. Mr. Oldfield, you in? Uh, yes. Who's that? It's Arthur, sir. I've come from the delivery. I've got another customer. If we can mm. carry on down. Yes. All right. Oh. Right, young Arthur. I'll have to go and get it out of uh, out of the cupboard. Okay. Uh, do you want to? Yes, thank come you. And take a seat. Thank you. What have you come to collect? A glass eye for my brother. He lost his eye working at the gum factory. What a dreadful thing to happen. Common is it? Accidents do happen. The odd finger and people lose arms and legs sometimes. And will he be able to return to work? He's got a bandage on and he's he's back in. Right, the young man. Here we go. What do we think? Wow. That's exceptional. Thank you very much, and pleased to meet you. Pleased to meet you. I wish you well. Right, here we go, sir. And you can have them free. I've been trying to get rid of those for an age. You're a kind and generous man. Thank you. Thank you. Hugh, I enjoyed number two enormously. I felt a bit better prepared. I met Herbert Oldfield. I'm hungry to see more. Now, instead of another house, I've actually got a shop to show you. This is a tailor shop owned by a man called George Saunders. 
He worked here and then his children, Clifford and Joyce, then worked in there after him and took up professions as tailors. Hugh, I think I've got a, a grasp of this time travel. I'm going to go straight over. I know a little bit about James, the 1970s. James, I think I'll James, wait. I James, wait. Hold on. Hello. Good Hello. afternoon. Good afternoon. What a good setup you've got here. So this is the shop in which you saw your father going about his trade. What did, you, what did you see? He made suits for Colbert Hamilton, who was like the Black Elvis. People used to come in with just photographs. Do you remember the Michael Jackson jacket with all the, it was the ropes and things yes. like that? Somebody would come and say, make me that. And he'd look at it and go, yeah, that's fine, I'll make it, yeah. Local dandies wanted to have something that was slightly different from the main street. Give me an extra pocket here or give me another different pocket there. He was very good at doing that. Now, look, can you, can you tell me more about your father? My dad's father was a tailor in the Caribbean, just after the war, for the American Air Base, and my dad would follow him. So this is where he learned his tailoring trade. A friend of his was telling him about coming to England. He decided to take the, the leap. He had other jobs before he got his shop. He used to work in a biscuit factory. From there, he had various jobs working for tailors. And then from his mishaps working for other people, he decided to open his own business. He had a, another shop before that, but he wanted to move further into the city centre where he could get more trade and more people know about him. So he was building his brand as a tailor. When we moved here, he was the first sort of black tailor to be on the street. There wasn't many black tailors around. Every other tailor was uh, either Jewish or white European. So he was very uh, um, a trendsetter at the time. So it all sounds pr pretty happy and positive for you. Yes, it was for us. But my, my father did have not positive situations when he first started he? in England. In what sort of ways? We've got a recording that you can listen to how he deal, dealt with the problem. What don't you do, what you do, what you do, what you do? There was an advertisement for a tailor in the city of Birmingham. And I decided to write an application for the job. And a letter came back to me saying that I am just the man that they're looking for. Please come for an interview. I got myself nicely dressed up with tie and everything like that. And I went in to see the man. The man looked at me and said to me, the vacancy is gone. I was dumbstruck. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And he said to me, I told you the job is gone. Get out. So I walked away. But as things went on, finally I started to work on my own. And from 1974, we were very, very busy. I have people coming for me to make suits for them from London. In the latter years, we made clothes for the Queen's Guards. My father would not take any of this disrespect towards him to heart. He was a good tailor and he knew how to make his clothes. And he worked hard. And people could see that in him and they respected him for it. 
Your family have clothed people for generations. And now this place has changed. It's become part of their heritage. I get very emotional because this is where I virtually grew up. Some of the um, items, when I look at them, I get this welling up of, wow, they're still around. What a great honour it is to have met you here, a place f where, where you feel the history. I think that's wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank it's you. been an absolute treat. Oh, Hugh, there were such a lovely story. I travelled in time back to the 1970s in my, my teenage years and so on. I mean, absolutely sensational story of that inheritance and legacy. Listen, apparently, I mean, people would walk in off the street with a photograph from the magazine. See you later, so can Hugh. You make a... Hi, Joe Sinclair. See, see you later. See you later, Hugh. You could see them. Yes, that's what I was trying to tell you. Joyce and Clifford are actually the real people. What is real son and daughter? Really? My goodness. <laughs> what a lovely couple. Thank you very much indeed for taking the day to show me around. It's been absolutely sensational. What an atmospheric and moving place it is. Extraordinary collision of time and space. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. Next time, we're donning all our warm weather gear and heading out for the exhilarating pleasures of winter walking in the Lake District. To get the latest episode of the National Trust podcast, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite listening app. To find out about more audio programmes produced by the National Trust, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. So for now, from me, James Grasby, goodbye.